welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is the third episode in our series, Flash in the Can, the one-hit wonders of cult cinema. Today we'll be discussing 1985's Return to Oz, directed by Walter Murch. Elena, this is our old house. The one the tornado blew away. This is how it got to Oz the first time. Looks like it was a rough trip. This used to be my bedroom. And in there was the kitchen. That's where we landed on the Wicked Witch of the East. Wicked Witch? But where are all the munchkins? What are you on about, my dear? Oh, no. Return to Oz is a 1985 fantasy film directed and written by Walter Murch. It follows the story of Dorothy Gale, previously from The Wizard of Oz, also featured in Frank L. Baum's Oz series, as she uh, looks to return to Oz um, after a brief hiatus at home. We pick her up after the big, uh, the big storm that's destroyed her home, and she's having some kind of strange delusions of Oz, or at least her Auntie M sees it that way. And so they look to send her to an institution where she can be cured of her of her delusions and her visions of this strange land that she keeps talking about, where she's given electric shock treatment, she escapes in a rainstorm, floats over to Oz, and then has to kind of find her way through Oz and the strange land it's become in the time since she's been there last. It's been decimated, it's this decrepit, kind of no longer nice, beautiful place, no. and she looks to return it to its former glory with her new companions, TikTok, Jack Pumpkinhead, and... The Gump. The Gump, yes, The Gump. A couch, the Gump. <laughs> a, cou- a couch with a moose head, The Gump. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what it is. Uh, so, so yeah. a, little bit of a, a little bit of a tricky synopsis there to get through, mm-hmm. um, because it's a little bit of a tricky plot for this film. It's, right. it's kind of out there. Well, it starts off very dark. Um, yeah. So And it, it stays pretty dark the entire time. Uh, but before we get into the film, Jeremy, just want to mention, so, you know, I think it's safe to say that we won't be talking about very many Disney films on this podcast, uh, but this this is a Disney film. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't think we ever talked about any uh, anything produced by Disney at this point, um, mostly because, so. you know, yeah, mostly because most of what they make is pretty mainstream and does very well. Uh, not many mm-hmm. cult films in their uh, repertoire. So this is a bit of an anomaly. Um, and it's an anomaly for a lot of reasons, which we'll go into during this episode. But um, one of the reasons is, so this is a sequel to, obviously, The Wizard of Oz. And this came out 46 years after that film was released. And um, also uh, another anomaly here is that uh, Walter Murch, who is known as a legend in the film business, he's actually known for his uh, sound mixing and his, his editing, um, he directed this film, and because you know this is the uh, the series where we're talking about one hit wonders, um, so this is the only film to date that he has directed. And while he has done a lot in in the film world and is very uh, he's very revered, this was not seen as a success when it came out. It was uh, very much not successful. So <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it 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 kind of it kind of fills an interesting place in 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 kind of the 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 grand scheme of cinema as a whole and also in the career of Walter Murch as as we just mentioned he was really known for his sound mixing and his editing 
Um, he has credits that include sound mixing. He sound mixed The Godfather. Mm-hmm. He sound mixed American Graffiti. He edited and did sound on the conversation. And what he's most known for is his editing of Apocalypse Now. So right. he's really kind of renowned, auteur-driven, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, big, big, important movies he's known for. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of a strange way. I, I actually, this is the first time I've seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this was this was Mark's recommendation. And when, when he said that Walter Murch had directed it, I was really pretty surprised to, to learn that. I had never even really heard of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it kind of flew under the radar for me. Yeah. Um, but, but it has a kind of interesting backstory um, that I was finding because... I guess Walter Murch was talking with a an executive at Disney and they were asking him what he wanted to do to see if they could kind of find common ground for him to work on a project. And he said that he wanted to do something that would take them back to the universe of Oz. Hmm. And Disney, um, so now it's easy to think, oh, Disney has always been this behemoth superpower who's just always successful. Hmm. But the 80s were not a good time for Disney. Well, they didn't really have yeah. a lot of major hits financially. The, the studio was really struggling. Mm-hmm. And they owned the rights to the Oz, mo- the Oz movies. And this and would Oz seem like a, a home run. This would seem like a surefire hit, right? On, yeah, pa- on paper, a, a, at least. Yeah. It, it's a very safe bet for them. So, you know, they, they kind of were looking to to do something with this property because basically they had about five years until their rights to the story ran out. So they were looking to get something produced because it was this great intellectual property that they didn't want to pass up. And here comes this guy who had a great reputation in Hollywood for producing really high quality material mm-hmm. saying he wanted to do it. So it was kind of this match made in heaven. Um, but it didn't go exactly as I think Disney yeah. would have wanted it to go. And I think a lot of that has to do with the film is just very strange. It's very mm-hmm. it, the way it came out is, you know, intentionally or not, it's very like surreal. Um, and actually, you know, you had mentioned that I recommended this movie and I had seen it before, which I had. But it's one of those movies that really it almost feels like a dream, like you dreamed. Mm-hmm. It, you know what I mean? Because even though I saw it, I, you know, rewatching it, I'm, I'm like, wow, this like even now as I'm rewatching, I'm like, this feels like very surreal and strange. Yeah. So and also I think part of that is because it's a sequel, but it's also sort of a reimagining. Mm-hmm. So. There's a much younger actress playing Dorothy this time around than Judy Garland. How did Garland. you feel about that, Mark? How did um, you feel about the younger actress playing Dorothy? Well, I Dorothy? think I think a big part of, of what he what Walter Murch was trying to do uh, with this film is to emulate more of the books, like to mm-hmm. to go back to the original novels that came out, the children's stories that uh, were were made by L. Frank Baum. You know, I think he wanted to go back to that source material and try to use that as much as he could. And in those stories, Dorothy is, I believe, 11 years old. So she's yeah, she's a kid. Yeah, she's a kid. She's a and kid. so this is more, uh, I, I would say this better reflects the protagonist from the original story. Um, so in that regard, I think it makes sense. Um, it is, but it is strange because it's also like, like we said, it's also a sequel to the Wizard of Oz. So it's like, yeah. okay, but now this character is, looks younger and, you know, and, and the characters that we do see who come back, uh, very brief cameos like the Scarecrow and uh, Tin Man and uh, Cowardly Lion, they look very different, extremely different, yeah. actually, um, and are totally different personalities. So, yeah, it's, it's it has that kind of dreamlike, uh, surreal kind of mm-hmm. feel to it. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think the way you described it is is right on the money. Is it it, it, it isn't like just watching a movie about a dream. It's kind of like digging into one yourself, where yeah. it really takes you to this. This strange place, kind of in a similar way, in a similar way, but also a different way to how the original Wizard of Oz, I think the original Wizard of Oz took you to this kind of... More whimsical, um, I guess. 
yeah, a, a whimsical kind of sweet dreamland, like the kind of place where you would want to hang out. Even the scary elements. Yeah. You know, like the witch and and well, the flying monkeys always scare well, they, the hell out of me. They're still scary. But yeah. <laughs> they're still scary. But for the most part, even even the kind of scarier elements about the original Wizard of Oz film are still fun to exist in. Yeah, there's like it's, the technicolor aspect and the you know everything looks like candy and yeah. Yeah, the 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 scary elements of this film. Like this feels more like a nightmare yeah, than definitely. than a sweet dream. The, like even like the yellow brick road is mm-hmm. torn apart. Everything kind of looks like mm-hmm. it's it's just been demolished. It's not it's not a sweet place to go. Mm-hmm. But this is this was meant to be a kids movie. Right. Um, I can't name too many other children's movies that have electroshock treatment yeah. as a major <laughs> right. plot point. Yeah. Um. So they really they really took some risks, and this may yeah. have been why. Disney maybe struggled a little bit in the 80s is mm-hmm. they were kind of trying to find who their audience was because maybe some of the kids who they had previously been able to cater to were growing up a little bit. Yeah. And they were maybe trying to find a way to kind of balance not making it for two little, little kids, yeah. but not making it straight up for adults either. But that's the aspect I feel like you can look back at it now and kind of mm-hmm. respect that because, I mean, I respect the yeah. fact that, um, you know, when it came out, I'm sure people were perplexed at the time. I'm sure it didn't really make much sense. But like looking back at it now and, you know, now that it's become more of a cult film, um, I can respect the fact that they didn't really cash in too much on the nostalgia, like as much as they could have, you know, right? Because like we mm-hmm. talked about, you know, the ruby slippers are there. Toto makes an appearance. You know, there is the yellow brick road, although and, and the Emerald City, actually, they do reappear, but they are, you know, disfigured and broken. Like you said, the citizens all mm-hmm. turned to stone. So the elements are there, but they're so different, like so boldly different that it almost seems like they did that intentionally. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they definitely they went a different route, uh, a somewhat darker route, which we'll get into, I'm sure, more. Um, but <laughs> And I'm sure that's a big part you know that the mainstream audience at the time rejected the film i think they wanted mm-hmm. probably more of the same they wanted what they remembered you know from their youth well i think context is important too um because this movie it came out in 1985 mm-hmm. and this was peak reagan america oh yeah um you know this was this was peak reagan 80s and which there, we'll get there back was, to with american psycho by the way <laughs> which we yeah we will get back to later on in this series with american psycho but i i think there's a thing where people kind of during that era um a lot of the movies that were very successful had this this kind of they, they needed to have a sweet kind of feeling to them by the end and you know this movie once again as we say on pretty much episodes spoilers ahead um watch the movie first yes if you if you will um <laughs> but always. you know even though this one kind of has a sweet ending to me it, it didn't really feel sweet because you know this yeah. girl is still going to live again with her aunt and her uncle yeah. i believe who just sent her to get <laughs> electroshock therapy and the only reason they that they didn't go through with this because it what it burned down or something like that. Yeah, and that was also something. This is a little bit of a jumping around thing, but at the very end of the film, once again, spoilers. At the very end of the film, the 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 center where she was getting her electro electroshock therapy, uh, someone made a quick comment that it burned down because it was struck by lightning. Yeah, and that the man the man who was in charge of the electroshock machine died in the fire. <laughs> Like they just casually, they're like, yeah, he, he didn't make it out of the, he <laughs> yeah. didn't make it out of the fire. He went back in to get his machines, and then yeah. this other woman who was just doing her job mm-hmm. was arrested mm-hmm. for some reason, probably because Dorothy she's evil. Yeah. got away because the light, yeah, just because she was evil. <laughs> but like these were two people who, you know, it wasn't the best medical practices. We no. know that now, yeah. but at the time they were just medical professionals trying right. to innovate. 
and do their job in the field of mental health. And they killed one of them and let the other one go. It was a little bit of a, like, it was not a happy ending for everyone. Or really anyone for that matter. I guess. Because Dorothy still, you know, we don't really know if this actually happened or not. Dorothy might just be having hallucinations Mm -hmm. as a 10-year-old girl. You know, she has a new house that's built, but they still live in a place where probably another tornado is going to come any day now. It's really not a happy, sweet. more of a, yeah, like a somber ending, sort of. Yeah. I mean, the Um, whole thing is a little more somber. In in keeping with that, yeah, that tone of the film. Um, So, yeah, it's it's definitely darker. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, And, like, you know, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot now, like, uh, uh, you know, like films with darker, gritty, you know, those those words are are thrown around a lot. But I, I feel like this film is just it just is that way. I feel like it's not even maybe not even trying to be that way. It's just the way it comes yeah. off is, you know, like, the, you know, we'll get into some of the specific uh, images that still creep me out to this day. Um, yeah. But, yeah, there's lots of stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So as you mentioned, there's the um, they brought more real world elements into the film. I, I noticed mm-hmm. um, than the first one, because. Uh, as you mentioned, it starts off with that very controversial treatment, in quotes, of electric shock, you know, electric shock therapy, which is like, you know, super uh, controversial. And there's a lot of history behind that. And to to put that in this children's film, um, to have the main character going through that seems like a very deliberate choice. Seems like, uh, you know, Walter Murch knew what he was doing with that, um, you know, because it's almost like he was trying to tie it to a time in history, you know, a time that, you know, where as people look at the first film, the first Wizard of Oz that came out, uh, what was it 1939, I believe? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, they look back at it with a very, like, sac- saccharine and, like, just like a, you know, like a, uh, an image of it that's just, like, bright and happy. But, you know, things like this were going on at that time, and it's like, oh, yeah. and it's like he, you know, Walter Murch was, was uh, seemed like he wanted to bring more of that real-world element into the film. Yeah. Well, and this is also, you know, a lot of the work Walter Murch did was very kind of driven if you look at a lot of the movies and when he was kind of at his peak creativity and peak working with these these big directors a lot of it was kind of political like like you know apocalypse now is a vietnam film mm-hmm. you know what i mean like like they, like they, there there was this certain element of, of politics and cultural critique that went on in the work and and i think that he kind of was looking to find a way to slip it into this film a little bit mm-hmm. um which I don't know. It's really interesting. It's just so it's so bizarre now, just thinking about how that script kind of got through all of the channels that it got through to be a Disney movie. Right. Um, I have a hard time now. I mean, now everything is a little more dark and edgy. And Disney um, owns everything now, so. <laughs> but yeah, and Disney owns everything. But but even so, like like a Disney movie that's intended for kids. Perfect example would be like Inside Out or something like that. Like it's right. dealing with some kind of dark, heavy subject matter, mm-hmm. but they do it in a way where. Yeah. Like, it's not so explicitly shown. Someone might be going through something um, and kind of using their imagination to process and cope, but it's not going to be done in a way that makes you feel kind of horrified. Like, it's not going to make you really face the realities of electroshock therapy. They'll do it in a way where it kind of makes you understand that maybe that's what they're getting at, but it's more about implication. Mm -hmm. But this was like, like, you saw the machine. Yeah. And it was a scary, the machine had a face on it, which made it. That was, Way scarier. It was supposed to, be, I think, make it like a little sweeter and yeah. cuter. But well, to me, like it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, uh, I guess, a callback to the original film, right? Because, um, mm-hmm. so, l- like you mentioned, the uh, the electric shock machine in the film, or in the real world of the film, 
resembles the character that we go on to meet in the film TikTok, right? So he looks like mm-hmm. a, a robot. Um, and that's similar to the farmhands reappearing as different characters in the first film. Um, and mm-hmm. how there's like different elements from Dorothy's life yeah. that kind of come back. So I thought that was actually kind of clever and, and kind of cool. Um, but also really disturbing. Oh, yes, this definitely. Girl, this girl yeah. is, you know, what's the word? Anthropomorphizing a um, <laughs> electroshock therapy machine to be right. her friend. Exactly. Like that's that's one of the most disturbing things I've maybe ever seen in a movie. This movie is quite disturbing. It really it's is. It's quite disturbing. <laughs> it's really, uh... Which is why it's kind of a good cult movie, because now yeah. as an adult, we can watch it. It's um, Yeah, it's great for Halloween time, too. <laughs> yeah, great for Halloween. Not necessarily, in the, but there's, there's a character with a, a head, as a, pum- a pumpkin as a head. Uh, um, speak, speaking of heads. Jack Pumpkinhead. <laughs> well, speaking of heads, I was going to bring up, one of the things that endlessly creeps me out is uh, when she's, when they show that the hallway with the, living heads in the glass mm-hmm. display cases i mean that's just like they're just it, yeah. they're just like blinking at you and it's just creepy like it's just so creepy and that and like the obviously beware the wheelers like those wheeler characters yeah um that's like the thing that will if you type in like return to oz creepy on youtube or something that's what's gonna pop up i'm sure yeah um you know because i think it's the image that a lot of people who watch this film in their youth they just remember that for better or worse it's because they just come off as so creepy and like threatening and strange which is kind of funny to me because they're not really good also corny yeah they're also strange like but also like what are they gonna do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah well they They have no they have no opposable thumbs (laughs) they get very upset when you steal their lunch boxes though Apparently. Yeah. Like I guess they could maybe run you over or like <laughs> knock you down, but like yeah. past that, there's not real. They, I, I don't think they can grab you, you know. No, <laughs> they, no I don't think so. Um, yeah, it's more just the image of them is just very um, yeah, yeah. But they are disturbing, un- unsettling. Which is kind of like the like you mentioned the monkeys, the the flying monkeys from the original movie. Yeah. And there are lots of things that like you know even though this is um, obviously it's trying to distance itself from that first movie in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. it'd be more like the books there are lots of callbacks and there are lots of uh, similarities and parallels between the two films like like I just mentioned the lunch boxes off the tree uh, like mm-hmm. in the first film Dorothy takes an apple off a tree and that and the tree attacks her um, in this one you know she takes a lunch box off off a tree and um that comes back to to be not such a good thing as well so there's things like that um that kind of pop up and the big thing is obviously the ruby slippers um and that's a a very specific reference to the classic 1939 film because in the books it was actually i believe silver shoes they were not silver yeah they were not ruby slippers so that's um that's something that i guess they really wanted to maintain i'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was Walt, walter murcher's idea or disney's idea i'm guessing probably disney um but maybe both uh maybe they just wanted to uh, incorporate that because that's the most iconic probably uh image from the first movie is those i would slippers. actually be curious though if it was walter murch or disney because apparently um that was the one thing that mgm did own the rights to disney did not own the rights to the ruby slippers right Right. Um, because that was an addition just for the movie. That wasn't from because Disney had the rights to use the books. They right. did not have the rights to use things that were made up just for the movie. Um, yeah. Which is probably why the characters look different. Yeah. Um, and all, and all that. Yeah, and why, yeah, and why too, that's the, a good. You know, that's a very good point. Actually. Why why Oz looks different? Why? Yeah. A bunch of things in the film look different. It's probably a, a rights issue. But apparently they paid a lot of money. I don't have an exact number, but they mm-hmm. paid a lot of money to be able to use the ruby slippers. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't know, but it is that it is an interesting thing. But I think, and Mark, you were saying this before. I think they kind of had to because we had all culturally just 
attached this idea of these ruby slippers to the Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. in so closely that for them to not use the ruby slippers, but yep. to kind of proclaim this as a sequel mm-hmm. to the Wizard of Oz, which I don't know. I'm looking at the poster right now, um, which it, I'm not seeing any thing that says it's actually a sequel to the Wizard of Oz. It's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's Return to Oz and their tagline is it's an all new live action fantasy filled with Disney adventure and magic. Yeah. So they say nothing about it being That's true. attached to yeah. the Wizard of Oz. So that really was, um, the Ruby Slippers were like the only element that really um, was it directly from that film, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, which is kind of an interesting an interesting thing. And once again, this is why I say I'm not, I'm not sure Disney totally knew mm-hmm. on this one what their goal what their goals were yeah. um, in terms of where they were positioning this because I think they could have just marketed it totally as its own thing mm-hmm. and it may have actually done better. Um, yeah. But because they kind of made it seem like it was maybe something that was attached to the original they film. Want, yeah, they wanted to bank on that nostalgia a little bit. They wanted to bank on it, but they didn't make something that felt anything like the original film. Exactly. And I think that's um, where the so, disparity comes from. It's like, it, it, you know, yeah. it, it's supposed to feel this way, but really it feels like this. So Because this on its um, own, you know, this on its own is it's it's a, it's a very specific, way different thing. You know, and, and I think if, if you just to say, all right, we're coming out with a movie that has nothing to do with The Wizard of Oz, it's it's about the, the books. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a literary adaptation. Yeah. And it's close to the books. I think people might have had an easier time kind of accepting it. That's true. That is true. And um, if, if you look at the illustrations from the original books, which I, which I love, by the way, and I, I did read the first three, actually. Um, oh, you did? Just because they're so short, and I just was curious, because I always, you know, the, the first movie... Uh, as I was telling Jeremy before we recorded, uh, it's my mom's favorite movie, and like you know, we watch it all the time, like every year, like we'll always watch that movie. Um, so The Wizard of Oz like looms very large in my my life. So I figured I'd go back, and um, now that I have a daughter and stuff, you know, it's been I've been more curious about children's books and stuff. So I went. Has back she and, seen it yet, or is it a little too she, scary for her? I feel like we're kind of on the verge. Uh, mm-hmm. she, the monkeys might freak her out, but yeah, I think I think soon I'm gonna try to show it to her. Um, very exciting. Which, yeah, which would be cool. So yeah, so this. Uh, this film is, while it's such a classic, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, maybe because of necessity, I guess, they actually went more toward the um, the original books and the original illustrations. And because I do, I do like the illustrations from the original books. And they actually went, you know, the way they portray the characters, like you, you don't see the Tin Man or the Lion very long or, you know, but when you do see them, they, they actually resemble uh, the illustrations from the original books. And mm-hmm. those were done by William Wallace Denslow. And when you get a chance, look him up and his history with the author L. Frank Baum of the original book because it's extremely interesting. I went down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole with it uh, on Wikipedia. And mm-hmm. uh, I just want to mention that it, <laughs> at one point, so they have a, a bit of a feud, not to get too into it, but just they have a bit of a feud, the two of them, about who owns the rights to the actual characters of in Oz. And they both have competing uh, newspaper comic strips at one point. And also at one point, uh, Denslow, the illustrator, has his own island and declares himself the ruler of the island. <laughs> and this is a real person that actually existed. So, yeah, when you get a chance, if you're interested, look that up. But yeah, back to sure. Return to Oz, which is in its own way quite um, odd and surreal. Um, so, I mean, Jeremy, what, what are your kind of like... You know, what are your thoughts? I mean, since you haven't ever grown up with it or you had never seen it before, what, what's your uh, what's your main takeaway from this film? Um, so I, I have a few, a few takeaways, actually, um, that I thought were interesting. One, um, 
yeah, obviously, like we said, you know, pretty wild, dark, spooky thing, and not what I was expecting at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just kind of exciting because I've never really seen such a dark take on the Wizard of Oz. I'm to be totally, or not on the Wizard of Oz, but on the Oz folklore. Um, so to be totally honest, I don't know too much about it. Um, I love the original movie, but past that, I don't know too much. So this was kind of yeah. interesting. Um, two, this movie had a really great cast. Yeah. Um, like, a, like a particularly interesting cast. So the one who played Auntie M, Piper Laurie, was the mother in Carrie. She gave a, an intense performance in that. And then was later featured in Twin Peaks, um, the series. Yeah. Um, which I thought was a kind of interesting thing, especially because David Lynch is a noted Wizard of Oz freak. He, oh, yeah. He loves Wild the heart. Wizard of Oz. <laughs> right. so, so in a weird way, this movie maybe kind of influenced um, yeah. Twin Peaks. Uh, which is kind of interesting. The other thing that, that called to mind as we're doing this one hit wonder series, um, for me, what I find so interesting about one hit wonders is kind of the influence they had um, because generally, at least for me, creatively, I'll get really into a particular artist and that artist will start to influence me. But every once in a while, there'll be a standalone movie or a standalone song or a piece of painting or something. So, you know, someone who doesn't have this prolific career, but they make something that really kind of gets in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about w- what movies this movie might have influenced. And the one that keep com- that kept coming to mind, which is actually, it's not a one-hit wonder because he's made so many other films. Um, but I kept thinking of the movie Sucker Punch. Okay. Um, directed by, I believe, uh, Zack Snyder. Yeah. Um, have you seen Sucker Punch? I've seen like parts of it i haven't seen the whole thing though so sucker punch follows it's it's the story of a young woman who goes to a mental institution and to deal with the um treatments that she was dealing with which included a looming lobotomy Mm. she kind of imagined this world where she was dancing and fighting off scary monsters wow it's very similar actually which is very similar (laughs) and i was thinking about it and it's kind of that that movie is kind of this kind of done a similar thing in terms of its following too uh-huh. where when it came out it wasn't really that well liked mm-hmm. um and i and it, because people i think just didn't really get the tone but in recent years at least personally i a lot of people i've talked to who really love kind of dark and weird movies have expressed their love to me for the movie soccer punch okay um so i don't know i i, I think there are some interesting kind of parallels there so i, I don't know if that's really a takeaway or just yeah. kind of something i connected with but i but i always think it's interesting just mm-hmm. seeing these, uh, this kind of family tree of these kind of cult and obscure movies of yeah. how they they branch out. Uh, what about you, Mark? What what kind of takeaways or ideas well, did you pull from this? Really, just you know what I said earlier about it feeling like a dream, and and that, I think that's what I like about it. It's also probably the main fault of the film is that it's um, maybe uh, well besides it being uh, you know <laughs> unsettling or disturbing, which you know for that depends on who you are about whether or not you're into that aspect of it or not. Um, I just feel like it's um, maybe a little muddled because uh, because it is based on essentially not one book but but two. So he two, took yeah. so it was um, the direct sequel to Wizard of Oz or the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the book when it came out. It was followed by two books uh, by L. Frank Baum called The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. Um, so two completely different books. And he took those and kind of, uh, I guess, mashed them together. And I mean, he does it in a in a a good way, I think. Like, I think he did some some actually pretty clever stuff with it. But he, because he kind of takes those two different uh, stories and, and puts them together, I think it it in turn kind of makes the movie feel a little muddied and kind of all over the place. Maybe not in the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I feel like 
the I mean I'm I'm a sucker for practical effects and animatronics and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So and I think they even used some claymation in there. So it's it's they, I think it, they used a lot of uh, yeah claymation the, in the um the gnome king I believe yeah was was a lot yeah. of a lot of that was uh, stop animation. So. I'm a sucker for those kind of effects, and this movie has tons of it. Um, you know, even the big prosthetic pumpkin head on Jack Pumpkinhead. I, I love that yeah. stuff. Like, I just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I, I'm into. So, The I, Talking Chicken. The Talking Chicken, another... Belina, yeah. I mean, yeah. and TikTok himself is really cool, and apparently yeah. um, to get him to walk, I think there was like a circus performer or something, or a gymnast or someone like that in, inside uh, the costume, actually on his hands walking on his hands to get that right oh wow so you know stuff like that which you just don't see anymore in movies i just kind of love and um so from that aspect i really think it's cool and also that's i have a theory where a lot of the reason that people are you know get creeped out by older movies and maybe older children's films or things like that i I think it's because they didn't use uh computer imagery as much and i think a lot of it Mm -hmm. is it has that textural like it has that you know, yeah. it feels real. It, it looks more real um, in, yeah. in certain ways. And I think it kind of gets in your head and can kind of mess with you in that way, which which yeah. I think is kind of cool. Like, I think that it's cool that they actually made a TikTok and they made a Jack Pumpkinhead and, you know, and, and they may not look perfect and they may look a little eerie, but, you know, I think it's cool they made them. And I think that's part of why these images stick in our heads. But yeah. I don't, would you, I don't know, do you feel the same way or? Yeah, I mean, I, I I love practical effects. Yeah. I, I think it's just so fun. I mean, I mean, there's a place. I'm not I'm not one of those people who's just um, so anti mm-hmm. um, CGI and computer driven well, effects. If it's used sparingly enough, I if think it, it's if fine, it's used yeah. sparingly or in the right situation, yeah. it can be very good. Right. Um, but there's something about practical effects where there's just a certain level of creativity that has to go into figuring it out. Mm-hmm that I think you end up with these really interesting solutions mm-hmm. that sometimes look great, sometimes don't look as great, yeah. but they, they always kind of have a unique feeling to them because each specific problem requires a specific solution. There's right. there's not kind of a blanket solution to figuring out. Because yeah. you say, all right, we want a character who has a neck as thin as a, you know, mm-hmm. a Coke can, but we want him to have a head the size of three basketballs. Right. It's a pumpkin, and we want him to talk and move. Yeah. Like, that's a really specific, complicated problem to figure out, and the solution you're going to get to that, trying to actually make it happen, yeah. is, is going to be more surprising and more interesting than going but, on a computer and doing it. Right, the practicality of it. And in, in that instance with Jack Pumpkinhead, they actually couldn't find a solution. They they couldn't make his uh, mouth move, so his mouth does not yeah. move in the movie, which mm-hmm. is, you know, that's – but, like, it's fine. Like, you watch it, and you're not, like – disappointed that his mouth doesn't move like it's you know it works it all kind of works um so yeah i so i think from that aspect i i I do kind of uh i definitely respect the film and and what they were trying to do and and the fact that you know i I guess like you brought up they maybe they couldn't really (laughs) bank on the the nostalgia as much as they wanted to maybe they did want to do that more but because they didn't own the rights maybe they couldn't so maybe i'm giving them like more credit than i maybe maybe than i should but I think it's kind of cool that it is so different, you know, because let's let's face it. If you're going to try to remake The Wizard of Oz, you're you're going to fail. Like, it's just yeah. there's no way. That's like we were just talking about before we started today. Like, it's one of those mo- or maybe the one movie besides like maybe Star- the original Star Wars, you know, that mm-hmm. they Hollywood just won't touch again. Like, yeah, like, they'll, the they'll, Star, like Star Wars, the original Godfather, yeah. they won't remake. As like, far as like rebooting movies. or remaking, like, yeah. they'll obviously use the intellectual property again yeah. uh, and the name of it. But they're, you know, as far as actually remaking the film, I mean, some films are just completely timeless and classic. And it's, 
almost impossible to do that. And the original Wizard of Oz is one of those movies. So mm-hmm. for, to me, this movie kind of makes sense. I mean, what else could you have done, really? Yeah. Um, an interesting note, too, in terms of, because I, th- I think one of the things we've kind of hit on a few times in this conversation is that this movie didn't totally land, and it, and it's kind of tough to figure out why. Be- I mean, it's not tough to figure out why, having seen the movie, because it's it's not a, really <laughs> yeah. a children's movie, right? Um, but not really an adult movie either, which now would do better, but in, back then not as much. Um, but a couple things in the production that happened, because this is our one-hit wonder series, so to come yeah. circle it back to Walter Murch a little bit. Right. So he actually, during the course of filming, he was fired briefly. Yeah. Um, and, and Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas actually petitioned for him to be rehired. And then I don't remember if it's before or after, but the head of Disney actually either resigned or was fired during that time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a change of management there. And when the next studio head came in, they actually gave this movie more money to make. So oh. there, there are also just a lot of elements going on kind of behind the scenes. That could also influence how a movie ends up tonally landing, Um, particularly the studio. Because, you know, a a director being fired and then coming back, he still kind of has the same ideas. Mm -hmm. But a studio head switch, you know, I'm sure you have one person who's giving the whole production one kind of notes. And then all of a sudden, halfway through, you have another person giving them notes that inevitably are saying the exact opposite thing. Yeah. Um, It's interesting that you said they gave them more money. Uh, yeah, I believe they gave them more oh, money because okay. what, what happens a lot of the time, um, in my understanding, is whenever there's a, a switch, uh, like a big regime change at a studio, a lot of projects end up getting dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of projects end up getting trashed, which means that there's A, money kind of going down the drain, but B, they don't have as many projects in development for – or not in development. They don't have as many projects in production, rather – for a little bit, yeah. which means that the ones that they are releasing, they probably really need to make sure are doing well. Right. And a lot of the time, a way in the film industry, at least in theory, to make sure your project does well is to throw a little bit more money at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my guess, I don't know, I wasn't there and I don't know anyone who was directly <laughs> involved with it to talk to, right. but my guess would be that they looked at this film as good intellectual property hmm. and said, all right, we don't have these other movies coming out because we just put the kibosh on them because there's regime change, but this one is a pretty sure shot because it's attached to The Wizard of Oz, so let's throw a little bit more resource-wise at this and see if we can make it really take off. And unfortunately for Disney, that was not the case. That's very interesting, Jeremy, because I read that um, the new executives that came in didn't have faith in the movie at Mm -hmm. all, and they actually... They, so they gave it a limited promotion and a short theatrical run, so I thought that was part of the reason that it didn't do so well. Yeah. So, I don't know, and once again, this information, you know, these, these are things that are kind of well, yeah. When it comes to you, the you internet, get a lot of <laughs> you get a lot of different stories right. from different people who are involved with it. Yeah, um, I can see it going either way. It, for, yeah, it could, yeah, and it could have been both. It could have been a thing right. where they threw more money at it and then realized they didn't like the product and then mm-hmm. cut it off. Um, I don't know. These things these things get buried a lot, which is why it's complicated. Yeah. Um, movie movie financing, particularly at the studio level, is kind of a murky thing. Um, people, people kind of have a habit of hiding money, particularly in their advertising budgets. Um, they they have a habit of hiding money and, and the big reason for that, as I understand it, is that you don't want to actually show profit because Mm -hmm. the minute you show profit, you have to start paying royalties to your talent and to your talent and to your director and your creative people. Mm -hmm. But if you're showing that you're still in the red, then the only people collecting are the, um, the people who have put money into it. 
Um, so I don't know. There's there's a lot of kind of complicated, shady stuff that can go on. Yeah, and it's a lot of it's like he said, she said, like you know. Who, yeah. In the end, I think there's a lot of reasons why this movie failed mm-hmm. um, to find the the mainstream audience. But of course, we're talking about it now, so it is a cult movie and uh, one that I think is still pretty well revered. I think uh, a lot of people will watch this, yeah. especially around uh, well, it happens to be October when when we're recording this, so around Halloween time. I think it's just one of those kind of like eerie kind of more creepy uh children's movies you can you can check out um and also just to wrap things up uh just landing on uh with with walter merch because we want to finish uh with him because this is the one hit wonders series and as i alluded to previously um this is a very specific use of the term one hit wonder because obviously walter merch um has had a very long legendary career as a sound mixer editor uh, but as far as directing films goes, this is it. This is the only film. I believe there was one TV project he was that he directed uh, mm-hmm. af- after this. Uh, but this is the only film. And, and I do wonder if the, the failure, well, I'm sure the failure of it um, had something to do with the, the fact that he never uh, attempted to direct, to direct another film. I wonder if he was even given the chance, though. Or, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I don't know if, or if, he, if it was that he didn't attempt it or yeah. if that he well, wasn't uh, given them I have seen interviews resources. with him, more uh, recent interviews, and he's... He seems very proud of this film still. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I would have to look into that more to see if it was his choice or not. Um, but it's interesting. It's an interesting anomaly that exists. And um, also one other quick shout out I wanted to say uh, about, Walt- well, actually two. Uh, Walter Murch wrote a book called In the Blink of an Eye. Uh, and if you're in- interested in filmmaking... I was going to say filmmaking and editing, but filmmaking in general. Yeah, um, particularly it, editing, though. If you, yeah, if you particularly have editing, an interest in editing. editing yeah. um, he, uh, he wrote this book. It's very short. Um, he added on to it years later, uh, and it's still very short. <laughs> and yeah. I, I read it in film school. Jeremy, I think you said you read it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just read it again recently. And there's, there's lots in there um, to take in, lots of tips and tricks and uh, just like the way he talks about different films that he worked on, I think it's very interesting to to read about that and to have in the back of your head if you're at all interested in film or in making films. Um, it's kind of it's kind of amongst editors considered the the bible of yes. film editing. So much shorter. If you have any interest in, if you have ever edited anything, yeah. you will find a lot of material in there that you understand and have experienced. And if you are hoping to edit or just learning how to edit, you will find a lot of very very helpful resources to yep. kind of guide you in the darkness yeah. in, the, in the cutting room or just watch an interview with him I mean, he's very knowledgeable yeah. and he's had a lot of uh, experience in the business obviously um and i still think of it every time i make a cut i think of yeah you know when, when someone blinks that, that is <laughs> when you make the cut uh you, usually usually anyway so usually. um oh and one other thing uh so he was also the one of the writers of a previous film that we discussed on this show uh thx 1138 with george lucas so those two were friends, and they wrote that film together. And that's you can find that um, in a previous episode we did for the series Lo-Fi Sci-Fi. Um, so THX 1138, that was a fun one to talk about. Um, and I think that about wraps it up for Return to Oz. Anything else you want to add there, Jeremy? No, just a, yeah, just a fun, wacky find. Good, yeah. good unintentional horror movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well... Thank you for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify. If you'd like to contact us or if you'd like to be a member of the cult and be on the show, you can reach us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Cult Movie Cult, and we'll see you next time from the other side.